this episode of the Higher Ed Shift, I was joined by Dr. Rachel Warnicke, Associate Dean and Chief Mental Health Officer at George Mason University. Dr. Warnicke is a seasoned leader in higher education, where she applies her expertise in mental health, psychology, and leadership in support of a university community. We discuss a day in the life of a chief mental health officer focused on strategies to improve student and staff well-being, the tolls of COVID and financial strain on students, and we discuss the growing challenges of burnout and coping for the faculty and staff that support them. Join us as we dive into the conversation. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Higher Ed Shift. I'm your host, Amy Glynn, VP of Student Financial Success with Campus Logic, now powered by Elysian. Today, I am joined by Dr. Rachel Wernicke, Associate Dean and Chief Mental Health Officer at George Mason University. Thanks for joining us for this important conversation, Rachel. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and that's what we're, we're here to talk about today. I would love to have you do just a quick introduction to the audience. Tell them maybe a little bit about your background and what the day in the life of a chief mental health officer in higher education looks like. I like that last part. That's great. <laughs> so I'm a psychologist, clinical psychologist by training, and I've been in the field for a while and I've worked in a number of different settings in hospitals and private practice have spent most of my time in higher education in various leadership roles and counseling centers. And now I'm in a, I am in an interesting role right now. I'm overseeing several of the health and well-being units at George Mason University. So student health services, counseling and psychological services, and disability services. But the chief mental health officer part of my role allows me to focus on mental health from a strategic perspective for the university. So in addition to making sure that the service-oriented units that we have are able to operate and serve students well. I get to think about with some help from others, how do we approach mental health as a university from a preventative public health perspective? So thinking about, you know, what systems do we put in place and how do we shift to cultures that supports well-being and mental health? So a typical day probably involves a number of meetings with stakeholders across the campus as I try to raise awareness and get support and bring people into the cause. What I really love about what you just shared is what I see a shift in mindset. It's been a little bit since I've been on a campus, probably, you know, working on a campus probably about 10 years, but I would say our approach to mental health and mental well being and even counseling service was much more reactive to our students. And it sounds like George Mason is taking a much more proactive approach to addressing student needs. Does that seem fair? Yes. And it's something that I think I know that we've talked about and folks in the field have talked about, which is given that we've really had a mental health crisis for a number of years now, not just in, in the recent years, is how do we get upstream of mental health crisis so that we're actually addressing the issues before they become crises? How do we put in place systems and policies and practices that prevent mental health crisis? Yeah. And I think some of that starts with structure. So you're the first chief mental health officer I've spoken with. Is this role or this level of alignment at the institution unique to George Mason? Or are, are you seeing a shift with more institutions elevating this type of role to that level? 
I think it's not common right now, but I am seeing a shift. I just actually read that the University of Michigan appointed a chief mental health officer, which is great. I think typically it has been embedded in the role of the director of the counseling center, but that's already a big role to, yeah. to, run, a, to run a counseling center. So it's difficult, especially with the rising demand for services over really the last 20, 25 years, for a counseling center director to be able to step back and do strategic work when they're really just trying to keep up with putting out the fires. And so I think what's great about this is that it pulls the role out of direct service so that you have the space and time to think about things strategically. Yeah, I think that's very true, though a totally different area of the institution. My background is in the financial aid office and in enrollment spaces. And I think the same thing happens in that space that you're that you're talking about here, that we really need to have that additional layer and elevate to have an individual who can focus on strategy and another mm-hmm. who can focus on maybe the day-to-day implementation. Right, right, exactly. So obviously you had mentioned that we've kind of been facing this mental health crisis even longer than COVID, but I think COVID shined this massive light on it. What changes have you seen in students' mental health or maybe the approaches even to mental health pre-pandemic or to post? And I guess, I don't know if we're post, I like to think we're post, maybe that's just my wishful thinking on a Friday (laughs) afternoon. (laughs) I'm with you. I hope we're, I hope we're close to post. Well, yes. So prior to the pandemic, there had just been rising need, especially in terms of like the severity and acuity of mental health. So more suicidality, more serious self-harm, that kind of thing. We saw that prior to the pandemic. What we saw during the pandemic, and this has been backed up by study after study, is just such a significant rise in anxiety and depression. I mean, some studies are showing a doubling in anxiety and depression among young people, which is really worrisome. And, you know, we we talk about, and many people, not just young people, have experienced things like financial insecurity and uncertainty, loneliness, social disconnection, so many different factors, the spotlight that on racism and racial injustice that obviously predated, but then just came into the forefront more. So all of these things created kind of the circumstances that would create poor mental health. So as you guys have looked at George Mason about how to approach this more strategically, can you share with us one or two things that you've been doing to address student well-being and the shifts that you've seen in their needs? Yes. So a couple of things. One is that we created a well-being and mental health task force, which we did on purpose once we knew, you know, the language starting to come out in, in the media was there's going to be this tsunami of need that, that we would experience. And how do we get ahead of that? So we did put together a group of leaders who could think about it. And our first effort focused on funding more mental health supports for faculty, staff, and students. And so we were able to get some funding for more counselors this year. But we also already had in place a number of well-being initiatives at Mason, but not everybody knew about it. So we, the Center for the Advancement of Well-Being created a Thriving Together campaign, which really was meant to raise awareness for the supports that we already have. Yeah. Because people would say, I think you should do this. And I'm like, well, we've been doing this, but we knew it, we need to do a better job communicating about it. So that's one of the things. And then finally, I would say when our new president, well, he's been here for a couple of years, but President Washington came in a couple of years. He started the Anti-Racism and Inclusive Excellence Task Force. And one of the actions that he took from that task force was to fund 
mental health professionals with specific expertise in diversity, equity, and inclusion and racial trauma. And so we're trying to make mental health and well-being supports more accessible to all of our students. I love that idea. I mean, we hear that the communication item that you talked about, like where people just are not aware of all of the resources and supports that an institution offers or even a community offers. Like that just, that idea of get, of promoting the opportunities is so important. And beyond that, I, I love the DEI component that you're talking about because I would only imagine that that level of comfort and connection with the professionals who are trying to serve, especially in mental, in a mental health capacity are so important for our students, given given everything in the world, but especially the tensions that we've mm-hmm. had more recently yes. kind of here, here in the nation. That's right. You said something and it just kind of like caught in the back of my head. I feel like you said that the support services are available for faculty and staff as well. Was that correct? Well, we're working on it, not at the level that we need, but that's actually one of the areas of focus for for the task force, which is to figure out how can we better support our faculty and staff, both in terms of having direct services for them, but also what we found is that they want help knowing how to support students who are in distress Mm. because they interact with students in distress frequently and, and many don't feel equipped. So we're, we're trying to, to attack it from both, both perspectives. Yeah. So I want to talk about both. Let's talk first about the specific employee supports. Mm-hmm. We're seeing huge, huge issues with the great resignation, with employee burnout. How can, how can institutions, or maybe not even just the broader institution, but if, if I'm a manager, what can I do to help ensure one that I avoid burnout, but like, what are the warning signs that I can look for in my staff and how can I help support them? This is such an important conversation right now. And there is such really good literature coming out about it right now too. You know, one of the things I think that we have often talked about is the importance of self-care, but I think that it can get overemphasized and we don't then as managers think about what can we do to create a culture that supports mental health and well-being. And there's some really good research coming out about that, some from Sloan Management Review, for example, that's showing how important culture is, you know, that cultures that seem to negatively impact mental health and well-being and spur resignations would be ones actually, interestingly, that overemphasize innovation when there's never a chance to kind of catch a breath, right? So that's that's one thing, or cultures that don't recognize performance well enough or don't create enough flexibility or opportunity for even lateral movement, not just Mm -hmm. higher advancement. So things like that. So paying attention to culture in addition to emphasizing that employees take care of themselves. And, you know, I think the warning signs are ones that, you know, we're not, we're not going to be surprised by. I mean, when, when people start to show lack of interest in their work or start to feel like it's checking the box, sick days are a big one. And even, you know, we joke about it a little bit, but it's not that funny when we talk about people being kind of crispy or a little bit irritable, but I think that that's, that is, can be a warning sign. And I know as a psychologist that that could be a sign of depression when we have a harder time regulating our irritability at work. Do you think, like, I'm thinking about what you're talking about with culture and, and building that connection in the culture and even what we used to be able to observe being in person all the time. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the move to remote or hybrid is leading 
to more burnout and resignation because we can't rec- we can't like it's not necessarily in our face as much when the person's like in their home office. I'm just mm. wondering if there's any correlation or any connection that you between remote versus in person. If, I don't know if my question makes sense. <laughs> just in terms of whether it's contributing to cultural issues. Yeah. Gosh, I wish I was more familiar with that. I, I will say that I know that there are people who are on one side that says we have to be in person in order to have a strong, healthy culture and, and others who, who argue for hybrid. I think that the what I've seen from the data are that the arguments towards flexibility are so strong that the people really benefit from being able to have more control over their schedules and that that satisfaction contributes to a positive culture. That makes sense. And I, I don't know that there's really a right answer. And I knew I threw that one at you from, from, (laughs) from left field. I think that what I have learned personally in managing a team remotely over the last couple of years is needing to be much more deliberate in a remote mm-hmm. environment about building kind of that culture and, mm-hmm. and connection with my team because you lose the the drive-bys at their desk or bumping in in the in the kitchen or, or whatever it is in that office space. That's true. That's true. Right. So the second component that you mentioned around supporting of faculty and staff at the institution is really making sure that they have the appropriate coaching and training to address student needs. We, most of our listeners are financial aid professionals, enrollment professionals, groups that are engaging really significantly with students around very personal and stressful items like paying for college financing. So what are some of the pieces of advice that you can give to those professionals? One in maybe being able to identify or recognize someone who is struggling or or needs assistance from a mental health standpoint. And two, how do we, like, how should we handle one? What advice do you have in handling one of those conversations? If it's not something we've done a lot of, or we want to do it better. I'm so glad you're asking this. And actually, after this, I can send to you, if you like, for show notes, um, a resource that we created for Mason last year that that I think there are some Mason-specific items, but most of it is something that all higher ed professionals could use. And it has lists of warning signs, things to look for in students. It also models conversations that you can have with students and really, I think, highlights the undervalued importance of just being a human being and being willing to sit with somebody in as they talk about their distress. Because sometimes when people show up in distress, it's not necessarily a mental health issue. It's just a legitimate reaction to a life stressor. And when we just sit and and we're compassionate, that can be very healing. But what I did want to acknowledge is that it holding these stories, and I can imagine that the the stories that the folks that that you work with and, and your listeners are hard. It stories that therapists hear are hard, but you're probably hearing trauma and other types of stories too, but not all professionals are trained to hear that in the way that we are. And so I think making sure that that folks have a chance to debrief in a way, I'll say that one of the practices from my field when working with trauma is to just have a chance to talk with each other, not in ways that, you know, breach confidentiality for students, but just to be able to say, I just heard the the worst story today and to not have to hold it by yourself and to, to get some compassion and connection with others as you do that. I love that. I, I love that idea. That is not something that I think naturally happens in, in the space of financial aid and enrollment once in a while it does. But I mean, even hearing that 
there are techniques and there are practices like that, that the counseling professionals use is really enlightening because to your point in you're in a financial aid office, you're hearing about divorces. You're hearing about child custody issues. We deal with students who are victims of abuse and abandonment and, and sometimes those stories and the the stress, even honestly, of having to have conversations with students around the fact that this may be your dream institution, but you can't afford it. Mm -hmm. That is, can really weigh on a person over the years. I have been referred to in the past by some people as a dream killer working in financial aid. Goodness, (laughs) And and it makes you feel really awful, right? But like, why can't we focus on the 98% of success stories that we have instead of the 2% of students where we have to say, I'm sorry, this isn't the right fit. So I, I love that idea of just being able to to take the time, decompress a little bit and even be able to, to share. And like you said, not carry. Right. Right. And maybe even having some specific training on it, things that you wouldn't necessarily think in terms of professional development. We provide professional development for health and health professional, mental health professionals around compassion fatigue and burnout and moral injury, right? Like, and which I imagine some folks in your field might feel too, which is I wish I could do more Mm -hmm. and I can't do more. And that really can hurt people when they're sitting with this. Can you talk a little bit more about what compassion fatigue is? Right. So just kind of in in lay terms, I mean, when you have to show up every day, being as human as you can, right? Not being jaded and numbed, but being able to sit with people in their pain, that's exhausting. And after a while, it can be hard to to summon that, to summon Mm -hmm. that level of empathy that, that you really need to. And it can take a toll on your health. And it can take a toll on your mental health. So I imagine that in the, the work that, that your folks have to do, that there, that there might be some of that, yeah. you know, given the stories that they're hearing. And so what, what are some besides kind of, I mean, you talked about it a little bit, like that idea of being able to have a conversation, what are other techniques to, to overcome compassion fatigue? Because I'm like, I feel like that really like that summarizes a lot of what I feel like our professionals are dealing with. I think there's a few things. I mean, we talk about how important it is to keep ourselves full as, as containers of compassion, which means we have to have compassion in our own lives. So making sure that as part of our self-care system, we are getting enough support. And I think sometimes for people who are in helping professions, and I think actually you, you work with people who are in helping professions, they, we don't take enough time. And so instead of seeing it as like optional, we have to kind of see it as an imperative that we have to take care of ourselves so that we can show up every day full. This is where I do think that supervision is really important so that we can help normalize for our employees what we're able to do and what we're not able to do. And then sometimes just plain rest, you know, just just rest is is what's needed. That's perfect. Thank you. I appreciate I appreciate you sharing that. I feel like we've I initially came into this conversation thinking that we were going to talk about students and I feel like I've spent the majority of my time pulling <laughs> you towards staff which is equally as important. Yes, it is. If we want to be able to provide the best student support, we need a healthy and well staff, right? I think that's right. That's super important for people to remember. So let's shift a little bit and talk a little bit more about students. Sure. So 
46% of college students report struggling now with concerns about money. And I think this ties into their levels of stress and anxiety, which then impacts physical well-being as well. Can you talk about how different types of stressors like finances do impact that student well-being? Sure. And that's just such a common one. I was just reading a study actually out of the American Psychological Association that was showing that among young people ages 18 to 25, that 82% are worried about money and that like 62% are worried about the economy. I mean, it's just so present that this worry and it is so associated with anxiety because we don't know when when it will shift. And so we have to sit with so much uncertainty. And so that creates a lot of anxiety. And then I think uncertainty around finances, we've had all this uncertainty around the pandemic. So it's like people are overloaded with uncertainty at this point. So yes, financial stressors are big. I mean, we've seen this a lot in the pandemic with job loss, with people not being sure if they're going to be able to continue in school because, you know, perhaps their families lost, lost jobs. We've seen more food insecurity at Mason and, and we do have a, a pantry and, and we, we try to try to help, but it's, it's, uh, it's sad when we're hearing about students who are making choices between books and meals. Yeah. I think from, I mean, the word sad is the only one that I can come up with as, as you look over the last in particular, probably five to seven years, the number of institutions that have needed to implement food pantries and emergency food and mm-hmm. housing assistance to your point, like these students who are struggling with the financial stresses of housing and food insecurity, they can't show up and be their best selves academically when they're still worried about the basic survival. Like they haven't even filled the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so they're distracted by it. And as, and if they're hungry, then they're distracted by that. So yes. Yeah. Like for some reason, we've, we've realized that our K-12 students with an empty tummy is a problem, but we haven't fully as a nation, I think, recognized the same thing when people are in higher education. And I, I don't necessarily fully understand it. Maybe people think like, oh, adults should take care of themselves. I don't know. Right. But, <laughs> right. Right. But we are, we're definitely seeing more efforts there. How So as as I'm thinking about these different types of students and some of our low-income ones, I start to think about, we have students from different cultures, socioeconomics, family backgrounds. How does a student's background impact their willingness or the likelihood that they're going to reach out for support services? Yeah. Yeah. And, and greatly, it, it impacts it greatly. Thinking about a cultural perspective, for example, there are such great variations in terms of how people think about mental health and mental illness and help seeking in general, mm-hmm. and whether that is seen as allowable or whether there's great stigma attached to it. When we have, um, even when I think about our international student population, many come to this country and they don't know how our health system works. So how to even access services and the whole system of it. And it doesn't have to be our international students. So folks who are students who haven't been exposed to it before. And so they don't know how to access insurance or maybe they don't have insurance. We actually have a yeah. number of students who don't have insurance and the number of, for the 
amount of pro bono and sliding scale mental health services is just not sufficient to meet the need. There are assumptions about cost, which are actually accurate in the private sector. And then depending on what school you go to, there, there are some free services, but they're limited. Yeah. So, so are those assumptions and those, those perceived barriers for students, are those things that you guys are looking to address in that communication initiative? Well, both in the communication initiative, for sure, but also in trying to think about what do we actually need to shift about our systems to make them more accessible. And so we do, this is actually one of the fun parts of my job when I get to think strategically, which is that one of the projects that we're working on is addressing equity in mental health, which goes to talking to students and figuring out what the real need is, how well are we actually set up to meet it, and then the communication piece about making sure that we're addressing myths and misunderstandings. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, I love that the way you're kind of tackling it from, from both sides to, to ensure that students are aware and comfortable and, and begin to access. So I read somewhere about JED campuses or JED campuses. Mm-hmm. What, what is this? What, sure. is, what does that mean? So JED Campus is an initiative that comes out of the JED Foundation, which is a, a nonprofit foundation that looks at suicide prevention. JED is actually a family name, a family that lost somebody to suicide. And this initiative is focused on a public health approach to the prevention of suicide and serious substance abuse on colleges and, and university campuses. And so There is a model that JED Campus has for the public health approach to this. Mason was, we just finished a partnership, we're going to continue to partner, but finished a formal partnership with JED Campus where we implemented a strategic plan for improving our public health approach to suicide prevention and prevention of serious substance abuse. And so it looks at a number of things that could create a culture of well-being and mental health. So improving responsive services, but also looking at things like environmental means reduction. So how do we look at the environment of the campus and reduce lethal means? So reducing access to chemicals, reducing access to rooftops, putting up signage that, you know, so that resources are are available. For example, understanding the importance of social connection and learning life skills. So that's part of it too. So when we start to improve student social connection and teach them how to manage life, that's actually suicide prevention. So it's, all of that together and more. So that's what Jed Campus does. Amazing. How long was your, I know you said you're going to continue to partner, but how long was, was the partnership? Has it, has it been in place with George Mason up to now? It's the formal partnership, which starts with a pre-assessment and then ends with a post-assessment is four years. And so okay. we actually just finished our post-assessment and we'll be getting some, some analysis back soon. That's what I was just going to ask you is what kind of outcomes you had seen from the partnership, but it sounds like those are still in the calculation phase. Yes. And I actually wonder how the pandemic has impacted it all as well, Mm -hmm. you know, so, but yeah, it'll be interesting to take a look at it. It is the unknown in Mm -hmm. every initiative that has been started in the world over the last probably three to five years, because we've got like this, this anomaly that's Mm -hmm. happening and no idea how long that impact will last. Right. Right. So would love just to see if there's anything else that you would like to share with listeners about your experience, how they can help 
support mental well-being of students or staff or even just anything else amazing that you guys are doing at Mason in the space before we before we wrap. I'm just so happy that I had a chance to talk about this and that this is a topic that's coming up in this particular forum. I think one of the things that I think is important is to is that all of us in higher ed think of mental health and well-being as our responsibility, as a, and as opposed to it's the purview of that office or that office that mm-hmm. really we all have to think about how do we contribute to a culture of mental health and well-being, and then I think we're going to you know start to really get upstream of some of these crises. I love that, and I I think you are one hundred percent correct. We need to own the whole as individuals and as supporters of the colleges and universities we worked at, but more importantly, the students we're serving. Mm-hmm. And, and to do that well, we need to understand what they're going through and how we can help. And when we need to raise the flag that, that it's really something more, right? It's, yeah. it's something more than just being like a little stressed out over this one little thing. It's a much right. bigger impact for students. Yes, right. Well, I know that people are going to love this conversation and are going to want to connect with you. So if listeners are interested in connecting and learning more about what you guys are doing, or they have questions for you, how can they connect with you? I can share my email with you if you like, and um, to to put in the the show notes and they're, they're welcome to email me. Perfect. We will absolutely do that. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining me. This has been a tremendous conversation. I feel Like I have personally benefited from the things that you've shared and I'll be able to take them forward. If you've enjoyed today's show, the best way to show your support is by following, liking, or adding a review on your favorite podcast platform. Also consider sharing this episode with your network to keep the conversation going. If you're looking for more ways to engage with like-minded people, consider joining the Student Financial Success Slack community, LinkedIn group, or tagging content with the hashtag Student Financial Success. I'm always looking for guests, feedback, and questions and topics. So please reach out. My contact as well as Rachel's will be available in today's show notes. 